Genesis 38:26. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Sheila my son. And he never knew her again. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. And I'm Brian Bales. And today we'd like to talk with you about the Bible. Specifically, we want to discuss Genesis chapter 38 today. Walking Through the Book is all about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading. We want to demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible. And we want to emphasize what the text says, no more and no less. We want to make sure that we are uh, having the proper understanding from the text, uh, as well as be able to demonstrate that that this is something that anyone can do. Anyone can study the Bible, uh, you know, outside of some particular situation. You know, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've come up against this, Bryant, but I've talked to people before that have, you know, plainly and honestly said, you know, I can't read or I don't know, you know, I'm not very good at it. Yeah. I've heard and, that uh, a lot. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I don't know what your method is with that, but my, my typical advice is get an audio book. Uh, or if you have a phone, you can easily find apps that will read the Bible for you and try to follow along with each verse. I'm sure you can even find apps that will highlight the words as they're being, you know, read. And so, uh, even if someone is not particularly able to read themselves, I think we find all throughout scripture that those people who listen to the truth and obeyed it to the point that they knew it, uh, you know, God's pleased with that. And uh, so even if, even if that's you today, we want to encourage you to, to think about what God says. Um, Brian, good to have you with us again. Uh, yes, been a long time. Yeah. And uh, we, we took, again, we took a very unintentional hiatus. Uh, Bryant had some technical difficulties with his laptop. We were so thankful to have uh, Jonathan Purse with us in the last episode, though. He, he really had a lot of good things to say to sort of kick us off with uh, the story of Joseph. And uh, of course, we're taking a break from that right now because the Bible takes a break from that with uh, with chapter 38. Uh, but uh, hopefully uh, in, in reading this, we'll, we'll, we'll get some good things, of course, out of this chapter. Um, before we start, we do want to let you know how to get in touch with us. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. If you Google at Walking Through the Book, you can find us there. Uh, also, you can email us at walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. And you can find the website where this podcast is hosted at northcolumbuschristians.com. That's the website of the congregation that I work with and worship with here in Columbus, Mississippi. We invite you to come be a part of what we're doing in God's kingdom and hopefully part of uh, what God is doing in this local area. Bryant, why don't you go over the flow of the program and uh, let the listeners know as well how to get in touch with you. Yeah, so uh, you can get in contact with uh, with me on Facebook, I guess, uh, 
can look me up on Facebook and uh, the congregation has a Facebook here as well. The Garden City Church of Christ. We meet just west of downtown Savannah. Uh, and we also have a website, GardenCityCoc.org, I believe it is. Um, we'd love to see if you're ever in the area or passing through to Florida or from Florida or just want to take a vacation and visit Savannah. It'd be great to see you and meet with you. I'd love to show you around Savannah and get coffee with you. Um, the flow of our program uh, is very, very simple. Um, just like Stephen said earlier, we're encouraging simple Bible study, Bible reading. Um, just kind of as a as a side note, real quick, this this may this may sound harsh and may convict you as a listener, um, but I, I believe this to be true, and I have to wrestle with this myself that if somebody's not being drawn to love reading the Bible and like just really hungering and craving for it, just making, sacrificing and creating time um, to read, I think is ultimately a lack of understanding and appreciation for who God is. Like so many things like, you know, kind of going off, off topic here a little bit from what I was supposed to be doing, but studying with, somebody who's not a believer and uh, I was studying with this person with a, with, with a brother, a very close brother of mine who we, we do studies a lot with people. And this person we were studying with, um, believes some things about God, but his life is a train wreck and he knows it. And one thing the brother I was with said to him, and I appreciated this, he said, you need to forget everything you think you know about God and start over. Because if you really knew who God was, you would not be living this way. And I think he was so right. You know, it's like, if I really knew who God really was, I would be so drawn to him. I would change. I would love God. I would be in awe of him. I would love reading his word. So that's what we're encouraging. We're encouraging a kind of study where we just read and we we talk about what we read in a way that what we're trying to do is appreciate who God is through his word because his word is ultimately an expression of the depths of who he is. And we want to convey that. We want you as the listener to learn and see that and to be infatuated with the God we serve and the God who is worthy to be served and praised. So we just read through the text. And after reading the text, we do initial observations. We just make some simple observations of things we may have not noticed before, things that just seem simple and important from the story. Uh, and then after that, we kind of try to connect some things thematically that might be related to the general story of Genesis or this, the Bible in general. And we conclude with just making some practical applications from the reading, um, which is always really interesting. It's always fascinating to see ways that we can, we can apply God's word. Um, and so that's what we'll be trying to do with the reading today. You know, one point I'd like to add to what you said there, Bryant, is that, uh, you know, one of the mistakes we make is that we let the media tell us about what the Bible says. And, mm. you know, who controls the world? Well, we recognize that Satan is called the prince of this world. And so what does Satan want us to think about the Bible? Well, he wants us to think that it's old. He wants us to think that it's not relevant. He wants us to think that uh, that it's too complicated for one person to completely understand what's being said, uh, or you know, there's a, any number of things that he can try to accomplish with that. 
But it's like I tell tell people, don't let the History Channel tell you about what the Bible says, because that's that's it's not going to work. You have to go and read it for yourself. And again, one of the purposes of this program is to help us understand that this is not as hard as we make it out to be. The only difficulty is, as Bryant has said, you know, do we really want to understand who God is? And uh, do we think that we know who God is already? Well, again, we can we can be like the person that took a theology course in college and say, well, I know all about the Bible. Well, I think most of us can recognize how ignorant someone can be, uh, even though they've undertaken something such as that. Um, but regardless, uh, certainly thankful for our time together. And Bryant will be doing the reading. What translation will you be reading from, Bryant? I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Genesis chapter 38. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hirah. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Er. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Chizib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adumalamite. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? 
And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who is by the road to Anaim? But they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them, otherwise we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see, whose signet ring and cords and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. It came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about, as he drew back his hand, that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. As we've established, we like to consider with the initial observations section some things that really jumped at us, maybe even uh, jumped out at us, excuse me, some things that jumped out at us, even in the reading, perhaps, uh, that we just did, or uh, just simply some things that seem rather interesting to us or significant in the scope of the story itself. And that's where we want to sort of limit ourselves to possibly stretch into other parts of Genesis that we've seen so far, but not really much farther. And, uh, and Brian, what are some things that, um, well, let me, let me back up. One thing that I do find interesting is I always find this interesting, really when the Bible tells us about someone's death and we get, barely anything about the nature of that death or what exactly happened. Uh, you know, uh, Judas firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord killed him. Okay. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how the Lord did that, but, uh, it's rather interesting that we don't have any other information than that. Um, and then, uh, the one who emitted instead of actually sired, a uh, uh, an heir to his brother, um, the thing that he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he killed him also. Um, 
the Lord doesn't always do that. <laughs> uh, it, it is not a consistent thing. It's almost like God chooses particular times to to do that. And uh, maybe we could talk about that a little bit in the next section. Maybe not. Maybe it's really not that uh, uh, big of a point. But, I mean, do you have any thoughts about that, Bryant, as to why we're not given very much about that? I mean, I think, I think that's really substantial and i was i was going to bring that up as an initial observation as well i mean can you think of any other time in genesis where god killed someone directly no i can't i mean other than uh if you could if you could say that he killed lot's wife uh i mean i don't know that you could say that though because that's simply the warning and the consequence of the disobedience of that warning right that she was not supposed to look back yeah. at uh, Sodom while they were fleeing. And so she turned into a pillar of salt. Um, yeah. Right. Now that's right. that's the closest I can think of. Yeah, and then you've got, you've got the flood, right. obviously, but that's, you know, the whole world was destroyed in that instance, you know. Because it's just interesting that, like, Cain killed Abel, and God did not kill Abel for that, even though Cain was evil. And there's obviously a lot of evil people in Genesis that God allowed to live. Um, you know, he killed the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but again, that's like he's destroying he the whole region. He allows Cain's whole family line to persist and move on, even though they're they're very right. wicked, it would seem. And we've talked about before how interesting it is that God so infrequently rebukes. I mean, he, do, he doesn't, I don't think, could be wrong i don't think god actually directly rebukes abraham isaac or jacob for anything no. that they did it's more provid they're providentially uh they're providentially um right they're, because of their uh, what i would say they're unwise or uh i would i would even go so far as to say sinful choices they bear those consequences they right you know they bear right because of that yeah and yeah they learn. exactly so it anyway, it's 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 just interesting because God really doesn't, especially individuals. God does not strike down individuals very often. Um, you know, I think of Leviticus, Nadab and Abihu. I think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter six, um, or is that Acts chapter five? Acts, was, Acts five. Acts chapter five, actually. Yeah, that's Acts chapter five. Um, so so obviously, like, and and something I've thought about. Um, this this might be too much, but you know, I thought about other passages that talk about the depth of God's judgments and how unfathomable God's judgments are and how purpose they are. So, you know, when when God does do something like this, it's not just it's not as shallow as what I think it is. And I, I always assume that something like this is very shallow. Like, oh, you know, it did bad and God just just killed him, you know, almost like a burst of anger. But the thoughtfulness of God's active judgment, his revealed judgment is actually unfathomably deep. Like there's always more to be discovered. And so I think that this would fit with that, that God does something directly. And I mean, we're, we, we talked a little bit before the podcast about how we're going to see this relate. And I, I wonder how we're going to see this relate to a lot of bigger picture things. And I wonder if God did all of this, knowing those things as he did them. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if God is all-knowing and all-seeing, then, <laughs> you know, certainly he's seeing the future and seeing how this all is going to uh, work out ultimately. 
uh, dependent upon the choices of everyone else involved. But, uh, I mean, I I have to admit to like, I'm going to go ahead and admit on here what I admitted to you before recording, Brian, that, that this chapter, it's such a short chapter, but it, it, it is so difficult for me to latch onto every time I tackle this chapter. It's just, it's difficult for me to really figure out, okay, what, (laughs) you know, why, what, but, it is one of those things where, again, Genesis is proving itself to be a book that is not isolated from the rest of Scripture, that it is completely connected to the point that, again, if you take Genesis just by itself, this chapter makes no sense. I, I don't know. I, may, maybe that's a, an extreme statement. But, I mean, would you agree with that, Bryant, that if, if you just take Genesis by itself and that's all we had, I'm not, I think we would get to this and why did God include this? Um, yeah. That's but, really but there, there is a purpose to it because again, you know, uh, and, and as we'll talk about in the next section, uh, this is how we get Jesus. This is how, this is in the line of Christ. And so, so we can appreciate that, uh, completely and totally. Um, yeah, go ahead. Do you think, do you think this of what God did is related to verse two, that the woman that these boys came from was a Canaanite. It's, it's difficult to say. I mean, that principle is there, right? Because it's very clear. Abraham wants Isaac to have, you know, Abraham wants Isaac earlier on in the book to have a wife that's not from the other nations. Right. Um, and, you see that general aspect too with Jacob and Esau. Esau is taking this, you know, taking wives from uh, almost seems like whoever he wants at the given moment. And it doesn't seem like he has too much care about it. He even gets to the point where he recognizes that Isaac appreciates that Jacob took, uh, you know, had an Israelite basically uh, of his own lineage uh, uh, to wife. And so he, he appreciates that. And, and, and so he tries to marry someone of his own line as well. Um, so yeah, I think the principle was there to some degree, uh, whether God brought this down because of that, I'm not sure that I can say that from the text itself, but given everything, I don't think it would be too far fetched if that's the case. Now I want to say this too, and we can, I don't know if we want to discuss this in the next section too, but, but there's a great misconception about why God did not want the Israelites to marry outside of their nation. Um, and I think we've dealt with this before, but I'm not sure uh, on this podcast. Uh, it was never a race thing. I don't think it was ever a racial issue or a biological issue or anything like that. It was always a question of, of religious influence. That's what God, and you, you look back at the warnings concerning that in the law of Moses, it's there because God is concerned that his people are going to be swallowed up with the idolatry around them. And that's exactly what ended up happening. Um, so does this have anything to do with it? I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Cause it, really seems like all of that boils down to yes. God's holiness. You know, that 
God's people need to learn to love to be holy and to maintain holiness. Um, and I wonder if like the principle of like God, if we understand holiness, we, we convert to God and convert others to God, not the other way around. Like we don't go from being converted to God to converting to the world. And it seems like that's like what Judah had done here. Like Judah had become like those outside of the, the name of God within the camp of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. I mean, Judah's clearly very, very loose in a moral sense. And it's, it's interesting because like he obviously knows what's right deep down but he's still trying to be a part of he's still trying to be a part of like the the leisure casual pleasure of Canaanite mm. society it seems while still like holding to some kind of appearance you know like he he obviously wants to hide his immorality you know like verse 23 says you know oh you know well let's keep this a secret you know we don't want to we don't want to be a laughing stock you know like he just wanted to kind of privately have his fun time with a prostitute Mm -hmm. and forget about it, you know? Yeah. um, You know, one thing that I did see that was pointed out about the, the term harlot in this, uh, in this verse. So the word for prostitute in verse 21 is a different word, apparently from verse 15 in verse 21. It seems to be, uh, specifically a Kadesha or Kadesha uh, versus a Zona in verse 15. Verse 15 is simply a woman who sells her services, whereas uh, a woman in verse 21 is going to be pointing to a woman who's engaged in fornication with men as an act of worship. Uh, that, that this is, and this is what was, would go on in the, um, in the ancient world. Uh, and so, it seems like Tamar uh, wore the kind of dress of a harlot, but when Judah, when Judah's friend took the payment for the services she had to give, uh, he was asking for a kadesha, the one who performed ritual fornication. So there is a distinction there in terms of what's going on with the words, and I don't know how that particularly affects. Uh, what's going on with Tamar here, but uh, I, I don't know. What, what do you have to say about that, Brent? Well, that is interesting. And I wonder if verse 21, if it's the idea that Judah was knowingly seeking to participate in false religion and idolatry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, I, don't I think, and that, that maybe that's getting to like theme and application with some things that can be said about that. So I, I'll have self-control. I'll hold back on commenting more on that we can come back to that, <laughs> we'll, we'll, that we'll come back to that let's make sure make a note of that so that we do yeah i'm writing that um, down on paper right now wonderful come back to verse 21 <laughs> all right uh <laughs> well what are what are some other things that you noticed in that reading it's strange it's, it's a weird it's a weird like especially let me ask this especially verse 9 I mean, that's that kind of jumps yeah. out at you yeah, in oh, this yeah. reading. It's yeah. like, whoa, what? <laughs> and and number one, it's like, why are you recording this, <laughs> Moses? You know, because I mean, he's the guy that's writing this. Um, and uh, and number two, I mean, isn't this one of the proof texts that people will will use to basically 
point out that, you know, masturbation is a sin. You know, if, if that's the case, then I'm not sure that this is the best place to look at for that. Yeah, there's probably better um, places to prove that point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, okay, yeah, so so God killed him. But I don't think God killed him because he emitted his seed necessarily. I think he killed him because he didn't actually follow through with what he said he would do. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm maybe I'm pulling that apart a little bit too much. But And certainly we, we would agree that, you know, what he does is wrong on a physical sense, as well as on a, on, you know, just as far as honor goes, I would say in that society and, you know, the cultural expectations. And this was an ancient cultural tradition that if your brother dies, uh, take his wife and raise up seed for him, you know, and, and, and this is something that was either incorporated or it was just given to be part of, the law of Moses. And so, so we recognize that, that and we see it, but I mean, I agree with your observation there. This yeah, is just weird. <laughs> the things Tamar does are strange and shrewd, you know, like, I don't know. I get the sense that she very desperately wants to be associated. Like it's really subtle. It's really subtle. Um, it's so subtle. I don't understand how to explain how it's there. Uh, I'll try though, but it seems like <laughs> it seems like in Genesis, there are people who actually comprehend uh, what's happening with the patriarchs and God's name being associated with them. And uh, kind of like Rahab and that desperation to get into God's nation, you know, Um. I feel like that's kind of what's going on with Tamar is there's, I mean, she put on her widow garments, which is like, she's clearly conveying to people like, I do not want, I do not want to get into a relationship. You know, I do not want sexual relations. Like it's, it seems like that's accepting and being content with her being a widow. She's, she's embracing that. And yet for a moment she changes to the garments of a prostitute and once she finishes that, she goes back to her widow garment. So this was not, it doesn't seem like this was a immoral woman generally. Mm -hmm. um, like this was something very planned and there's a reason she did it, you know, cause I, I mean, she could have, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is she could have married other men. You know, if she really was just a loose woman, uh, she could have decided, well, I mean, there's other fish in the sea, you know, so I'll just go and marry someone else. But she was determined specifically she was determined specifically to continue to strive toward having a lineage within judah's heritage and mm -hmm. there's something about who judah was and i don't think it was any secret of who judah was associated with and who jacob was associated with um so i just think i think that's interesting just thinking about the the reason why tamar was so shrewd and determined to have a heritage with, with Judah or his children. That is another mysterious aspect to the book, isn't it? We never really get a very clear picture of what the understanding or what the perspective is of, of the other people, like people in the nations, people among the nations of who Abraham was and, you know, who God's chosen people were. Um, again, it seems like Abraham leaves Ur of Chaldees, 
in almost like a kingly way. I mean, he, he, he has an entourage from the beginning, it would seem. And so I don't think that he was just a nobody in, in her. I don't think he was necessarily a ruler. He might've been part of a, you know, tribal, like chieftain family, who knows? I mean, we, we don't know these things, but, uh, but again, that, that gets back to it where, and, and that's, that's just an interesting question. What did the other people of the ancient world, how did they consider, you know, these families? And, and it seems to be that, you know, let's, let's say this too. The timing of this story is out of place <laughs> in, in because there are a number of things. There are a number of things to consider the age of Judah, the age of his children. When, uh, when Jacob, excuse me, when Joseph is sold into slavery, uh, it seems to me that, uh, Judah would have been about 20 years old when Judah was sold into slavery. I don't think when he was 20 that he had children that were old enough to be able to take wives. So it would seem that this story takes place toward the end of the time while Joseph was in Egypt before the reunion of the family at the end of the book. Would you, would you agree with that, Bryant? Yeah. It seems, I mean, it seems like it's some kind of interlude covering some frame of time, definitely between the reunion of Joseph and his brothers and the selling of Joseph. You know, it's almost like the Holy Spirit didn't want to mess up the the pace of the later chapters where where you see this back and forth with with Joseph and his brothers. Um, right. And so we go ahead and get this story before we go back to, to Joseph's story. And remember, we want to keep in mind that ostensibly Moses is writing this while he's in the wilderness with Israel in that 40 year, 40 years wandering. And, uh, so, uh, you know, it, he, he's, he's more of a historian. Historians don't always write down things chronologically, especially in the ancient world. They didn't all the time. And as the Bible often does, we'll get, we'll go along on a narrative clip and the author takes a break and says, by the way, let me tell you about what happened here. Uh, just like, in the book of Mark, when we get to the story about what happened to John the Baptist, it's in the middle of something. And then we come back to where we were again. So uh, just pretty interesting to me, uh, the placement of that. But um, but yeah, just the way that this enters into the whole of the picture, um, you know, it certainly seems that, that there could have been some notoriety or just the very fact that she knew she wanted to be a part of this family somehow. Uh, yeah. So very good observation there. So there's something I want to say on that, but I want to save it until we start our theme section. Perfect. Do you have anything else to, to add on this section? Uh, yeah, I think it's um, the last section with the kids is, interesting you know i think it's fascinating that we almost get this zoom in of okay let's just really zoom in on the time when these kids were born here <laughs> you know which just really shows that there's something important about that i mean it's just it's just to me it's very fascinating it's very unusual you know there's these twins and one puts out his hand and then this lady decides "Ooh, tie a scarlet thread here and then pulls his hand back in and the other kid's like, no, here I come. And then he just like pushes himself out. 
and then says, "Wow, what a breach! What a breach you've made for yourself." So he's Perez, and then the scarlet threaded one is named Zara, which means dawning or brightness, which is quite interesting. Um, yeah, just fascinating. It's just a really interesting story uh, to put in there at the end of it. Yeah, I would agree. I don't have anything else on it. <laughs> oh, 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 one more thing, I guess, in initial observations. I think it's interesting that uh, the when Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute, like, it's interesting that the way she did that would have kept her identity clearly anonymous. And I wonder if that's kind of an interesting window into, like, the nature of prostitution at this time would be, you know, the women would be anonymous. Like, you wouldn't actually know the person you were having sex with. It would, mm. mm-hmm. Their identity would be hidden and they could just be, they could be women living their lives in society and you would have no idea who it was. As I, as I um, understand it, I mean, that was, that was the case, especially with a lot of religious aspects of that. Like yeah, I've, I've heard, I've understood that um, in many ancient societies, it would have been looked at as a, a positive thing for a woman at least once in her life to go to the temple and offer self offer herself up for the sake of the deity. So that, that I think, and I know that, that she wasn't particularly offering herself up as that, but um, uh, just interesting thing to consider there. Yeah. And I think it, it shows we keep getting these windows and I know this is kind of delving into kind of a theme, but we keep getting windows that in Canaanite societies in Genesis, women were not respected and women were treated cheaply mm-hmm. and they were used, they were used sexually. And it's, it's just interesting that in Israel, you constantly see it being reaffirmed that women are to be respected and treated respectably and pu- in a pure way. Mm-hmm. Kind of like how when Judah, when Judah has it found out that he had sex with this woman in a immoral way, I mean, he's just so ashamed of himself, you know, so it, it, that is an interesting contrast about the treatment of women mm. and in Canaanite cultures, godless cultures, women are not treated honorably, but in God's culture, women are treated very respectably and expected to be treated respectably. That's a good point. It makes me think about how when you go and if, if you actually read the code of Hammurabi um, in, in, you know, one of the earliest uh, written law laws that we supposedly have, um, you know, it's actually very much more, you know, much more harsh than the law of Moses. Um, and, and I think again, that, that shows you something about the world. Um, a lot of interesting applications there as well. So, of course, with the theme section, we want to consider and keep in mind um, the the big picture of Scripture. We want to sort of open up our focus some and appreciate that, you know, God is 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 connecting these things for us. 
and and so often we have the understanding that you know this is done for a particular purpose and a particular reason. So uh, with that in mind, um, you know I do uh, I do want us to kind of start with the fact that of course we do get Jesus from the line of Judah. Continued through Perez is the one that carries on that, and maybe we can start there, Brian. Do you see any significance with the with that birth? You know, we just talked about that in the previous section. Do you see any uh, significance with that moment moving ahead? Which uh, which moment of the birth of the children and the way that, that things came oh, about? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's interesting. Like the scarlet thread, it seems like scarlet things. Like there's always like scarlet's kind of a consistent theme. You know, Esau, Esau came out red, so he was like scarlet colored. Mm-hmm. And then the stew that he sold his birthright for was colored red. And it's weird that the narrative actually points that out. Well, Isaiah, and then though your sins be as scarlet; they shall be white as snow. Right. Okay. So yeah, that's a really good connection. Yep. Yep. And then the temple system and tabernacle, everything would have been covered in blood. So everything would have really been covered red at some point. I mean, blood's splattered everywhere all the time. Um, Jesus, when he was on the cross, uh, would have been just completely colored in, in, in red from his blood, right. uh, head to toe. Um, so yeah, I don't know. There may be there may be something there. It's just interesting that it, you know, and, and Rahab had to tie a scarlet thread around her window. So scarlet's just kind of an, a consistent theme through the Bible, and I don't necessarily have a good answer on like what that theme is, but it's clearly there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting that it's here, and it's interesting that it's these two kids who have this very strange interaction with one another before they're even born. I mean, what do you think about the way that these kids interacted with each other? You know, I I really, I really don't know exactly what to say to that because I mean, I I, I know the, the, the making of the breach, you know, the, the, the term breach there. uh, I mean, I, I can't help but think about the, the tear in the veil uh, maybe that's too obvious, <laughs> uh, but but the veil of the temple that that basically when Jesus died, it was torn from the top to the bottom. Um, uh, maybe I'm reaching with that, but I, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. There might be something to continue the puzzle yeah, over. Maybe we won't. Maybe we won't solve that mystery today. But um, well, kind of stepping stepping back further. Um, you know, in terms of Judah himself, you know, this is an ugly chapter, Brent. It really is. I mean, there's, there's a lot of terrible things going on. Uh, it's, I don't know if it's the worst chapter, but, uh, you know, there, there, there are worse things to come obviously, but, um, but I mean, what do you see concerning the character of Tamar in this, that, you know, that we could kind of tie into other characters, you know, obviously Rahab, when we get to Jericho, Rahab was a harlot, but she was not a harlot in the religious sense. It is using that other term that I think is Zona. Uh, so she was not a harlot in the 
religious sense. Um, and of course, she is touted in Scripture very prominently as as a woman of great faith and strength and conviction. Um, but uh, but I mean, w- are there connections to make between people like that and Tamar? Hmm. It's a great question. Yeah, maybe so. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to take it from there. Okay. I'd have, to, I'd, have to, I'd have to think about that. I, I I'm throwing really, some curveballs at I, you. I really I'm sorry. No, no, that's, that's good. It's good to think about that. Um, well, it's, it is interesting that, like, Tamar, it's like she disappears. You know, it's like this is, this is what it says about Tamar, and that's, and that's it. You know, like this is the chapter where you find Tamar and there's, there's nothing, there's nothing more there, right. you know? Yeah. And, I, and maybe this is a point where we just need to appreciate the text. Again, if we were to be given everything about everybody, uh, the Bible would be, you know, impossible, literally impossible to completely look at throughout the course of one person's lifetime. Um, and so, but we have this moment shown here. And I think one of the things that we can appreciate is that and it seems like we keep seeing this in Genesis, even though you see people behaving and acting in, in morally deplorable ways, uh, the solution is being worked on, right? Uh, the Messiah mm-hmm. is coming every moment that is passing by the Messiah is coming. And, uh, you know, why didn't, why, why wasn't Jesus sent at this time? Well, again, I think there's a number of things that we could look at and see, but this line, this family line, there's a purpose to all this. There's a reason why this lineage is there. There's a reason why you see the lineage in, in Matthew. There's a reason you see the lineage in Luke and, uh, Right. And there's a reason why there's why they're different lineages, and I believe uh, the one in Matthew is Joseph's lineage, and the one in Luke is uh, is Mary's lineage. But uh, you know that that's one of the things that again it, it helps so much in as I as I admitted earlier uh, in my uh, in my uh, confusion concerning this passage from time to time. It, it, it is so core to appreciate and understand that, you know, God has a plan. Uh, he is bringing about the coming of the Messiah, even in spite of uh, all the mistakes and the wrong choices that people make. Um, and, and God at times, um, you know, go, going back to unless do you have something on that before I keep going? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, It's really about. I just want to make a comment on the brilliance of how how God writes, because ultimately this is this is from the mind of God. The way that God tells stories is brilliant and profound and challenging. Um, God doesn't he doesn't write history like people write history because it's not just history. He's not just 
he's not just giving us information to know to know the facts of how things happened. God is expressing himself. And he is carefully constructing stories and carefully placing and pulling things together to actually cultivate and thread themes and lessons that teach us about us and teach us about the convictions of the cross and the resurrection and testify to his holiness and glory, um, which is why the story is where it is, I think. Uh, because ultimately, and and here's one of the main points I was getting to with all of that. I think it's important that this is really unexpected and jarring. Mm-hmm. It's like you expect this is this is all going to be about Joseph, and then all of a sudden, and it came about that Judah departed, and it's like what? Uh, whoa! And then it gets more and more and more of it, and you're like, wow! And then chapter 30, 39, it's like story goes on with Joseph, and you're like, kind of left with your hand on your head, like what was <laughs> you're, that? You're sent you know? reeling, <laughs> right? And I think the point is the story is mm-hmm. not about Joseph. It's not. It's not about Jacob or Judah. This is actually a story about God. And Genesis is about God. And it's about how God treats people. And it's about God's covenant. And it's about a covenant that transcends these people. And it's about a covenant that transcends the law of Moses. It's about how God makes covenants with every person ever and will ever do so. Um, so the story is not about Joseph, Jacob, or Judah. It's about God. Because God is using these people to teach us about himself. And how how do we learn about his glory? So it's a story about how God, cov- how God makes covenants with people to bring them low. And to exalt them through their humiliation. Uh, there's a psalm I've been thinking about. I've been reading the fifth book of the Psalms. Uh, check out Psalm 107 really quick. This is a really interesting psalm. Uh, it begins the conclusion of the Psalms, starts the fifth book, which is the last book of the Psalms. Um, it's interesting. So it tells uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. It tells six stories about people who are brought low that they call to the Lord and then he brings them into a safe, secure and peaceable condition. And then it says, you know, let them praise him and thank him and tell of his wonderful works. And it's interesting in verse 42 through 43. And in all of these stories, God is bringing people really low uh, in all six of the stories. Um, The point is that God, God brings people low so that they can seek him and then he can exalt them and then he can enter into a covenant with them and bring life into their lives. Verse 43 says, who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindness of the Lord. I think that's the purpose of Genesis 38 is we're to consider the loving kindness of the Lord. We're to be wise and we're being called to be wise to consider something greater than the story itself. And I think that just really opens up the depths of God's heart in ways that are difficult to even begin with words to appreciate just really puts me in an indescribable place of awe to think about. So that's, that's a really long no, comment. So I'll amen, just stop amen, there. Brother. Very, very well comment. said. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> to, to appreciate what God gives to us means that, 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 you know, we take it in the way that he gave it. Right. I mean, in, in the sense that we don't try to, to make it into something else. 
And, and sometimes right. for us to realize again, who God is, we have to be brought to the lowest point possible. Um, that's right. You know, and that's why, that's why godly parents, if they're faced with children that are completely rebellious and do not care about serving the Lord, uh, maybe even don't care about living a actually use useful life. Maybe they're just com- completely reckless. You know, that's why godly parents will pray that God allows something terrible to happen to them that doesn't kill them, you know, because that's, that's being right. said for the sake of their soul. Uh, it isn't because they want that terrible thing to happen to them, you know, and that's where, I mean, I was even talking to somebody earlier today about this um, at at one of our studies is that, you know, we have to be careful the way we think about God's will. You know, terrible things happen and we say, well, this is the will of God. I think we need to be careful about that because I don't think God wants people to die. He doesn't want people, he doesn't want a child to, to die of cancer. You know, he doesn't want anybody to die in these terrible ways. He doesn't want people to suffer the injustice and the terrible things that, that, that we suffer from time to time. I think, I think it's really cheapens him if we say that's exactly what God wanted. Um, I, I do think we can recognize that God has a way for us to see through these things. And, and that's, that's part of it is that, you know, God had a plan here that he was trying to accomplish. Did he want all these things to happen? Mm-hmm. Did he want Judah to act in the way he did? Did he want Tamar to act in the way he did? You know, does God revel in the fact that there are parts of the Bible where we can't seem to find any good guys? Uh, no, he, he, he doesn't, he doesn't want these things, but in the course of these things, um, his plan is going to be realized. And the great thing about that is that his his pleasure his will is going to be accomplished what he ultimately wants will be accomplished he will have uh he 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 has a people and and he is their god and and that that has been his purpose all throughout time and all throughout the scriptures we see that same exact message i will be their god they will be my people um even though it doesn't look that way right now even though it may look extremely dark right now, we can trust in God in the same way. When we see these things happening here, we can, and I'm fading into application here, but when we see these things go wrong in scriptures, it helps us to understand that even though things look wrong right now, maybe in our lives, maybe even in our congregations, uh, that we can look to a time, you know, when, when God's people are all together. And uh, again, I don't want to go too far there because we do want to hit on mm. that some more in application. So kind of extending off of that, um, I think this shows that God's covenant is about changing people. That's really what Genesis progresses into is just how changed everyone is at the end of the book. Uh, but mm. verse twenty-six, that statement Judah makes: "She is more righteous than I." Because think about think about this, like. In verse 24, I mean, what did <laughs> when Judah heard that Tamar was pregnant from from prostitution, I mean, what did he say? <laughs> right. So, I mean, he's <laughs> yeah, like, whoa, let her be burned. You know, scary. 
I mean, he's just like, let's put her on a stake and let's set her on fire. It's like, wow. All right. And then when she's very clever, she seems very calm in this, you know, she puts where she says, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. You know, just very clever. It's seems like kind of like a David and Nathan, like a, you are the man kind of moment. And it's interesting. She didn't accuse him. Mm-hmm. She just calmly says, look, you know, you just tell me whose are these. And if Judah said with his <laughs> mouth, let her be burned. But then he says, when he recognizes those are his things, when he says she is more righteous than I, what is he saying he deserves then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's saying that he he deserves that same punishment that he brought upon, but that he was going to bring upon her. But is he even saying worse? You know, right? like, because she's, oh, he's yeah, saying yeah. that she's oh, righteous yeah. in comparison to him, you know, like, so, Bert, so yeah. he, he oh, does, he's acknowledging, yeah. like, you know, if she deserves that, then I deserve more and one of the things Jesus challenged the Pharisees to learn when they wanted to condemn the disciples for doing something that wasn't even unlawful, picking the heads of grain, Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not mm-hmm. sacrifice. I think Judah learned that here. Yeah, I mean, because... <laughs> even though he was forced into the situation of showing mercy, you know, uh, he, he, he right. does so ultimately. And so there is a, yeah, right. there is and a it also touches there. on another fundamental teaching of Jesus. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the long that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. And so, yeah, I think, so many, so many great commands, principles, attitudes um, are all are all brought together in that statement in verse twenty six, and I think that caused a ripple effect that changed the world forever. Genesis has a lot of things like that, you know, little little seeds, like for instance, uh, no no pun intended, but kind of pun intended. Right. Genesis twenty two through your seed, all nations will be blessed because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. There's just, there's moments Mm -hmm. God wants us to pay attention to, and he wants us to look into the heart of it. For instance, Genesis chapter 15, Romans chapter 4 expounds upon one verse in Genesis chapter 14, or Genesis 15 verse 6, and Romans 4 explores the heart of what it means when in Genesis 15, 6, it says, and God accounted it to Abraham for righteousness. Abraham believed and God accounted it to him for righteousness. And there's there's that seed, there's that moment that 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 begins this this ripple effect that can later be explored when all things have come to their fulfillment, the heart of it can be explored. And I think that's verse 26. That now at the end of the consummation of all the ages, this 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 hidden treasure can be looked into and discovered because now Jesus has come and revealed what this really has been all about the whole time, God changing the hearts of people, God bringing us low, God making us accept our guilt, God humbling us before him and helping us recognize that me first, me first, I'm condemned, me first. Um, and I think, I think it also leads to Genesis 44, 18 through 34. It's the longest speech in Genesis. And I think we've talked about this before. 
but Judah gives the longest speech in Genesis, and I don't think that's an accident. And he is merciful. He, it's when Joseph is holding Benjamin hostage so that um, Benjamin can stay with him. And Judah basically says, take me instead of Benjamin. I'll sacrifice my life for Benjamin's life. I cannot stand to see my father receive any more grief. He may die from his grief. And Judah is not fearful of being punished by his father. He's fearful of, of making his father grieve. And shouldn't that be our motivation, mm-hmm. right? How fearful should we be? Yeah, yeah. That's significant. So, you see the evidence of, of change further in Genesis 44, 18 through 34. But, um, Stephen, should I also just go on to the lineages as well? Should I hold off on that thought? I mean, we're, we're, we're in the theme. Right. You can go wherever you want. Sorry for taking up so much time. There's <laughs> just uh, so much to say. Um, no, no, just to good. magnify the, the ripple effect of that statement, she's more righteous than I. This story is deposited and dug up again at the end of the book of Ruth. And it is just, I think it's just one of the most amazing things. I mean, it's just, wow, you get to Ruth and you read it and you just, it's just exhilarating to to see that and and just just the mind blow of, wow, there it is. Uh, Ruth chapter four, um, verse 12, the people say, moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez. And we have not heard anything about him this whole time from Genesis 38, all the way up to Ruth chapter four. And they say, whom Tamar brought to Judah through the offspring, which the Lord will give you by this young woman. And then 16 through 22 of this chapter, it leads into Perez all the way to David. And then in first Chronicles hmm. two and three. It goes from Perez, way past David, past Josiah, past Zedekiah, past Jehoiakim and uh, Jeconiah and all his brothers, and goes way down past Zerubbabel. And then in Matthew chapter 1, it picks up, again, the genealogy and leads into Jesus. Uh, so there's, there's just this unfathomable ripple effect that God continues to pick up on, I mean, lifetimes, lifetimes beyond each moment of the genealogy being touched on again, lifetimes beyond each moment. There's this this tapestry God is threading. And really it begins here. Um, and I think, I think I would even go so far as to say as this is the moment I think that God chose Judah to be the son through which Jesus would eventually come. There's no, I don't think there's any clear indication at this point of the Messiah coming through one particular son. But we find out at the end of the book that Judah is the one through whom Shiloh will come. And I think God worked that out uh, through this statement. She is more righteous than I. So I just think that's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, another aspect of that that's interesting to me, and I don't know where how to put this really, but I mean, that's what Saul says mm. to David. Mm. Isn't oh, it? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Wow. What a connection. Yeah, I think it's the second time or the, 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 I think it's after the second time that David 
is encouraged by his, you know, by his mighty men to slay Saul and he cuts yeah, for his Samuel robe. 24, 17. And yeah. And so, so Saul says, you know, you're more righteous than I am or you're better than I, what, what's the actual that's, that's term? Exactly what he says. Yeah. You're more righteous than I. But, but see the difference here is that obviously that made a difference mm-hmm. with Judah because he had mm-hmm. this mercy but that didn't make any right. difference with Saul. Great point. Such a good point. And how That's sad. A great point. So the final section on application, we want to zero in on what we take from this and uh, what are some lessons that we pull from this? We we do have some obvious things, I think, Uh, just in general, um, you know, don't do something that God will kill you for. (laughs) But uh, no, yeah, that's pretty good general rule. Um, But, uh, you know, there is an aspect here that we do need to appreciate. We've touched on it already, but it is the aspect of, of God's holiness. And when you consider that term, one word that I like to say that we need to really think of when we think of holiness or being holy is the term separate. Um, you know, not in a sense of us necessarily being alone, but, uh, in the sense that I'm separated from other things for the, for the sake of God. And, uh, you know, uh, th- does Judah learn everything that he needs to learn in this chapter concerning these things? Uh, maybe not, but I certainly think that, as you say, there seems to be some aspect of change here, even though he's pushed into that change. Um, and even though all these terrible things are happening, God is, uh, you know, God really obviously, and, and you touched on this too, Brian, God obviously must have made something uh, special about Judah's family uh, be, be made clear to Tamar because she does seem to still want to be associated with the, with that family. Um, but, I mean, I'd like your thoughts on that, um, where holiness falls in with this story and what we can learn to mm, uh, really better apply that holiness. Yeah. I think with verse 21, you know, it seems like Judah wanted to be associated with the more pleasurable aspects of the false religions of Canaan, you know, cause he wanted, he, he recognized that he thought this woman was a temple prostitute or religious prostitute. Um, you know, and I think, I think that's a part of what compromises holiness is looking for pleasure. Um, I think that's, that's really how Satan works to allure people away from, away from the Lord is the idea that there's a better way to find fulfillment outside of the Lord than there is in the Lord. I'll tell you, like, personally, I didn't, I didn't cultivate when I was younger, a 
the joy of the Lord. Like I didn't rejoice in hope and learn to rejoice in the Lord. And I, I think when somebody has a faith where they don't rejoice in the Lord and they haven't learned to make the joy of the Lord their strength, serving God does feel unfulfilling. Uh, it does seem like God and his ways are not actually satisfying and it opens the heart to seek satisfaction in other places that feel fulfilling. Um, and, and that's just very dangerous. You know, uh, Judah obviously was not finding his fulfillment in the Lord um, when he was involved in prostitution. I'd say an application is if, if you're a Christian and listening to this, uh, learn to rejoice in the Lord. Like make make that a focus. God God commands us so many times. It's there's eight times actually where it's explicitly commanded that we need to rejoice in the Lord. And then there's other times where it is commanded through implication. Like James says, you know, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So rejoicing in the Lord is is very important. It, it gives substance. It gives it gives substance to God's holiness. It makes God's holiness a fulfilling thing, not just an obligation, not just a rule, not just a restriction, not just a moral standard. It makes it fulfilling when we rejoice in the Lord. What, what, what are your thoughts on that, Stephen? You know, I would put myself in the same place uh, in that, uh, you know, when you hold to these things, from a purely right, I, I, I hesitate to say academic is the only real word. It's the only word I can really think of right now. When you hold it to it from a, a, a strictly academic stand standpoint, there is no joy in that. Ultimately, um, you can you can be right, you can feel like you're right, but you probably don't know why you're right, and you probably don't. Uh, have a strong enough conviction to hold up in the face of continued scrutiny uh, and continued trying of that faith. And, uh, you know, that's, that's absolutely what I ran into as a teenager. I, I believed I was a Christian. I would uphold certain things in front of my friends, but you know, my, my friend group chipped away at that over time. And I think the result was that I abandoned that entirely. Once I, recognize once I saw in my mind that I don't know why these things are wrong. I don't know why these things are right, you know? And, uh, so I, I think you're onto something there that, that, that it has to be an aspect that I, I am not just, uh, I'm not just honor bound or obligated to carry out these things, uh, that, that, that this indeed should be a joy. It should be a positive thing to serve God and to appreciate what he's given us. You know, there are so many people out there. I would say that there are gospel preachers out there that uh, from time to time get very uh, hostile reactions from fellow Christians over the sake of, of what they're saying in the pulpit uh, don't don't mention this church because my friend goes there and they might get offended. Um, you know, be be really careful about this. You don't have to worry. You know, don't worry about talking about authority. We've heard lessons all through our lives on authority. Let's talk about something a little simpler there and a little straightforward. Um, you know, if we don't have a joy in what God has given us, no one's going to give us that joy. You know, and some people in that situation will say, well, we need a different preacher. We need a different 
situation here. We need to bring someone else in. And maybe you do. Uh, but, you know, let's take a step back and think about, you know, do, do, what am I doing to actually revel in the truth of God? Um, am, am I appreciating it in the way that he's given it for the reasons that he's given it? Uh, you know, if, if Judah had been busy uh, working on those things, I dare say he wouldn't have gotten involved in that kind of a situation. I agree. What do you think, Brian? Um, yeah, I, I think it shows Judah hadn't made his relationship with God his own yet. And yet, all along, we've seen that that's exactly what his forefathers had already done. Right. And it seems like people in the crowd around Jesus fell into that, too. You know, and maybe Judah was there where he was he was around his father, Jacob, and maybe there was a... I mean, clearly in chapter 37, I mean, they sold Joseph to Egypt, so they obviously had terrible attitudes. Um, but I think there's just a danger of of feeling like, well, being really being really devoted is that person's job or that's who that person is. And I'm just I'm just not that person, you know, and you just you, you grow very content, you know, and I think that, again, it shows a lack of really knowing God. It shows a lack of comprehending God. And it shows a lack of appreciating what God has done through Jesus Christ. Um, and we just, we need to, we need to have more spiritual conversations. You know, we need to be more excited about, about our faith. We need to be willing to boldly talk about the exciting, why, why we're excited about Jesus. You know, something I've been convicted about myself is I need to talk more about Jesus specifically in excited ways and in joyous ways, not just things of the faith or going to heaven, you know, and being saved. I mean, talk about Jesus, talk about loving Jesus. And I love Jesus Christ. I am so thankful for Jesus's love for me, you know, and, and treating Jesus more as a true person, you know, rather than just the establisher of my salvation. And now what I talk about more is just related to aspects of faith and the mechanics of faith. And so I, I think that's that's a helpful thing is is learning to boldly talk about Jesus and and do that with brethren you know cultivate cultivate more joy among brethren who who do love God but struggle with communicating that joy and cultivating that joy it, it's a, it's a discipline that needs to be worked at through faith and through comprehending God and God God blesses those who seek to do that and so I hope that that maybe can help if if you're thinking well. You know, I hear you, but what do I, what do I do with that? Hmm. And it has to be individually motivated. Uh, you right. know, that, that that's that right. is, Absolutely. That's, that's one of the most, I think that's one of the most difficult things for us to understand sometimes. And I mean, I feel blessed that there, there was a sense where I, I when I, started to really realize what I needed to do in my life. I was in a situation where I was fairly uh, isolated from my family and, and away in a whole different state. And, you know, I think maybe that isolation probably helped me understand that, you know, I need to figure this out. <laughs> I need to give this an actual run for its money, not just have it be something that I grew up with and that I'm filing it into some kind of random place, but that I'm, I'm letting that faith, uh, you know, trying to let that faith be alive within me. And, 
it's right. the same thing where we recognize that that atheists can read the Bible, but not truly understand it. Right. Um, so, and, and it's interesting. This is indeed one of those chapters that that does make it clear that that we need to have the whole picture. If we don't right. have the whole picture, we can't understand this. And then it's it's almost like a symbiotic thing too, because if we just had Jesus and we didn't have this. Well, there's a link from the chain that's taken out and the chain itself becomes weaker. Does that make sense? It's like we wouldn't, we wouldn't understand how, tr- how strong the chain is God created unless we have each component, you know? Yeah. And it becomes, it becomes apparent how necessary each component is now that we see it. I think one of the key things in this chapter of application is the willingness to be embarrassed. Mm. Um, that oftentimes happens coincidentally maybe somebody coincidentally finds out i've done something or i've been trying to hide something and somebody catches me or something like that you know there's a lot of coincidental embarrassment um that comes from either sinning or you know saying or doing something that maybe just needed didn't didn't wasn't intended to say um but something i've been thinking about myself and I, Stephen and I have talked about this in length um, the willingness to talk more openly with others about my struggles and what I'm tempted by and learning to make the distinction that when I tell people I'm being tempted or when I tell people I'm struggling with something and need prayers or even confessing sin that's not a sign of failure it's actually something we should look at as being a success because that's what this chapter is. This chapter is actually a celebration of Judah becoming humbled and recognizing his sin. It's not a celebration of his sin, mind you. It certainly is not. It is a celebration, rather, of Judah Judah being willing to accept that sin. Um, and I think it... Oh, go ahead, Stephen. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the time of weakness, and and we know all throughout Scripture that great men of of God, great men of faith, right. have had right, moments right. of weakness. Elijah, um, you know, John the Baptist. Are, are you the one, or, or should we look for another? Yeah, well, wait a minute, perfect, John. <laughs> Aren't you the one that said, right, "Behold, right. the Lamb of God, uh, which takes away the sins of the world"? Don't you know this? Um, but you know, it, we we go back and we recognize, hey, he had been put in prison for telling the truth, man. I mean, you know, he, you talk about unjust, that's unjust. And, uh, you know, just because he was asking, here's the thing, he was going to the right source to figure this out. Uh, even if he had that, that moment of, right. of what we might call weakness, I think we need to be careful ascribing and say, well, that was, that was sinful when he had this doubt. Right. I'm, I think we need to be careful. No, that's right. And I think it's things. important to cultivate a new mind because I've noticed that I've created the wrong mentality about confessing temptation and talking about personal weakness. And that's just really dangerous. It's really dangerous because people can think that I've, I'm the one who has all the answers or my life is so put together, you know, that I'm, I'm not someone who really needs God's mercy very much, you know, and I can really, become that man of Romans two that Paul clearly conveys as being just as condemned as everyone else in the world of Romans one. Cause in Romans two, 
he talks about the Jew who feels like they're the corrector of the foolish. They're the light of darkness. They're the ones who have the embodiment of truth and knowledge, you know, and, 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 and that's, that's, that's dangerous. And you see it, Paul actively working against that and, and weakening himself and letting people see his weakness, letting people see his struggles. And I just, I have a, even right now, um, I have a very bad, I have a very, a very bad attitude I've created because I've allowed my heart to be very shallow. And I've, I've discovered through talking to brethren about this, that opening the heart and exposing the heart, I find more and more to be one of the most fundamental, important, and challenging aspects of what makes the new covenant what it is. The Pharisees pushed the heart back and pushed the appearance forward. Jesus pushed the heart forward and pulled the appearance back. In in the same sense, and this goes back to the theme of Genesis itself, um, God covered the shame of Adam and Eve with mm. the tunics he gave them. And in the same sense, God That's can cover right. our exactly, shame. Exactly, exactly. And, and God is encouraging us and he's encouraging me um, to be more open-hearted. And uh, so Luke, Luke 12, um, 1 through 7, I think is really important in this. In Luke 11, uh, Jesus had just got done, you know, calling the Pharisees whitewashed tombs and they clean the outside of the plate, but the inside is, or the in- outside of the cup, but the inside is still totally dirty. They said they're full of robbery and wickedness. So in verse, in chapter 12, he says in verse one, you know, to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Here's what he says. He says, there's nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light and whatever you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. And what Jesus is saying is like the things you're trying to hide and keep, keep private, you know, God's going to bring that to light. That's going to be known one day, whether you like it or not. In verse four through seven, here is the most important part. He says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. And then after that, have no more, they can, no more they can do. And he says, fear God. He has an authority to cast into hell. Six and seven, though, he talks about how valuable we are. I don't allow people into my heart because I'm afraid of them. I am afraid of the judgment of people. I'm afraid to be embarrassed in front of people who I've created the wrong perception. I've, I've created the perception that I should be respected, that I've got things, I, I, you know, and if somebody finds out I'm, I'm struggling with temptation, well, maybe they'll, maybe they'll think less of me, you know, and, and that's just a bunch of silliness. That's, that's a fear of people. We become, we become, yeah, we become more fearful of man's judgment that's right. than God's and judgment. And if I understand how valuable I am to God, how much he values me, then I should see that willingness to embrace the dip, the revealing of the depths of my heart to people as, as a, as something worth celebrating, like in Genesis 38. And it really does take a, a purpose effort of faith to begin to do that. And I just really have recognized how weak I am in that and how immature my faith is in that way. And I've just really had to pray that God helped me in that. And I've really had to, I've, I've had to begin having faith in God to work through a lot of damage of how I have not been doing that for so long. And it's, it's deepened my relationships with brethren in ways I can't, I can't even begin to describe. It's, it's created a different kind of relationship with brethren that I recognize as, uh, 
much more accurately scriptural and spiritual um, and, and much less shallow and superficial. And, and I think it's, it's a powerful thing and it encourages me to go farther with it. And yet I, I still recognize that I still, even recognizing those things, struggle so badly with it. Um, but, but two things on that one temptation, struggling with temptation does not mean you're sinning or doing anything wrong. Uh, Jesus struggled with temptation more than any of us ever will. And it was nonstop for him in his life. So to pretend as if I'm better than temptation or to pretend like admitting that I struggle with temptation is somehow a sign of defeat or failure in faith is ridiculous. Uh, in fact, to pretend as if we don't struggle with temptation is actually the silly and ridiculous thing. And that should be embarrassing to even act like that can be the truth. Um, we need to, we need to actually recognize that temptation is real. Uh, Satan is always trying to find ways to get us to stumble. And number two, if people understand that I struggle with temptation every day in deep ways, it helps me to be distressed in the right way when I'm tempted. It helps me to have more community relation with brethren uh, and confidence that they'll pray for me and, and help me. But it cultivates an environment of mercy among the brethren who know these things. And it also makes me more comfortable to confess sin to brethren when I have sinned without hiding it. I find that I, I hide sin from people, but I confess sin to God because I know that God knows my struggle and I'm confident in that. So when I hide my struggle from people, I fear that they'll be shocked by my sin because they never knew I was struggling in the first place. And so I would just encourage the listener to think about those things um, as applications. Well, not to take any power from what you're saying at all, Brian. I mean, don't you think one qualifier there would be that we do need to find brethren that we trust? Oh, absolutely. We have to be wise that, about that, it. You know, yeah. And because and we have brethren that are weak themselves, and we need to make sure that we in the scope of confessing these things, don't create a stumbling block for someone else. Um, but I mean, yeah, that, that's just, that's just a simple, uh, you know, just, just an, a thought to add to that. But I mean, your point is extremely, extremely well, well made. I mean, you know, if, if we don't have a short list of brethren that we can call up and, get advice from and, and to be able to even pour our hearts out to some degree. Um, and, and, and another thing that, you know, one thing that I think, uh, has kept me from doing that so often is this thought that, well, you know, I'm going to be wasting their time. You know, I don't, I don't want to take up too much of their time, you know, but, but the brother with the right kind of heart, uh, you know, is going to make the Absolutely. time, um, you know, to, to listen and to, to consider what you have to say and to, to be there for that kind of support. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I wonder, I've never really read about this, but I wonder how the Jews of the first century looked at this text and what the, yeah, what the rabbis, what the Pharisees taught about this. I mean, did, were they ashamed to even go to this right. point? I mean, cause it, cause if they had this superiority elitist kind of mindset that seems to permeate, their behavior in the gospels. I mean, I was even in, in Acts, uh, Acts chapter four in a study earlier today. And it just kind of struck me how, you know, they're still afraid of the people. Mm -hmm. They're still so right, afraid right, of, right, right. of what the people are going to say and what, you know, 
and, and, and who should they really be fearing? They should be fearing God. Right. And, and here's a miracle in chapter four that's been done and they, they can't, they can't say anything against it. They can't say that it didn't happen. They can't say this guy was a plant and the apostles put him up to this. So what do they do? <laughs> you know, their hands are tied because their, their fear is not in the right place and, and they don't have an appreciation for what God, you know, has put forward. So, you know, let's try to learn from these things and appreciate that, Hey, there are some really ugly, ugly parts of our lives. And, uh, you know, let's be wise in the way that we share these things, but at the same time, let's work to, to make sure that we're putting the right focus on being holy and recognizing that, yes, there are some things that we we've done that have been terrible, but God can resolve that. God can make that as if, as if it's never happened. Right. Great point. Repent, repent and be converted. So that your sins may be blotted out in the times of, of refreshing may come from the Lord. Um, we need that. We need that in our lives. Everybody's looking for the new start for the new, you know, uh, we need something new. We need something that's going to, well, God's provided it and it's in Christ and it's nowhere else. You're not going to find salvation anywhere else, but in that's Christ. such a good point, Stephen. I'm so glad you said that, you know, because I found for myself that confessing weakness, confessing temptation or sin None of that is complete without the direct tie and acknowledgement of the grace of God, you know, and the power of God. You know, it's like if, if I embrace my Amen. weakness, but I'm not relating that to the grace of God and the power of God to help me and deliver me and strengthen me and, and make me more complete and how God can bless me to know him and to seek him in new and deeper ways through acknowledging his glory in relation to my weakness, you know, it, it's our weakness just is not complete without God's strength and God's power. So I, I, I think that's such an important qualification on all of that. Hmm. Well, I think that's a, probably a pretty yeah. good place to end it. We're already at, we're already in an hour Ooh. 38. I know we'll probably take about 15 minutes off of that, but <laughs> an hour 38 for Genesis nice. 38. Yeah, that's not really bad. works out. Well, we're certainly certainly thankful for you uh, taking the time to listen to the podcast today. We hope it's been beneficial for you. And uh, uh, Brian, thank you so much for your time as always. Thanks for getting your <laughs> yeah, laptop finally. fixed and right. getting everything back into order. Yep, great to be able to do it again. <laughs> Wonderful. Next time we'll be looking, Lord willing, at Genesis chapter thirty nine. And uh, but until then, we encourage you to study well and be lights to God's glory. The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org. <laughs>